welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. It's weird, we're recording without a buffer, so we're actually really on top of things right now. (laughs) (laughs) On top of things slash terrified that if the baby wakes up, we're screwed. (laughs) Exactly. We are (laughs) on the verge of baby screwedness. (laughs) I literally, that's my life, just always. <laughs> How you doing this week, Joe? I am doing okay. I feel a little bit bad. I feel like both of us will be a little glad to get this particular text off of our plate so we can move on. Yes, please God, yes. Can we do news first, though? Absolutely, yes. Why don't you start it off? Okay, I have something that's not from my library hold list. I'm pretty what? excited. I'm shocked. Okay, so I just got an advanced reading copy of this book that I have to tell you about, Joe. I just have to tell you about it. So it's going to be on sale in June. I think it's June 4th that it's coming out. It's called Like a Love Story by Abdi Nazemane. I have heard about this because I also received the opportunity to get an advanced copy and I thought it sounded interesting. It so. sounds so interesting. So I'm just going to read the summary for everyone because I feel like it's going to get our listeners excited. Okay, so it says, It's 1989 in New York City and for three teens the world is changing. Reza is an Iranian boy who has just moved to the city with his mother to live with his stepfather and stepbrother. He's terrified that someone will guess the truth he can barely acknowledge about himself. Reza knows he's gay, but all he knows of gay life are the media images of men dying of AIDS. Judy is an aspiring fashion designer who worships her uncle Stephen, a gay man with AIDS who devotes his time to activism as a member of ACT UP. Judy has never imagined finding romance until she falls for Reza and they start dating. Art is Judy's best friend, their school's only out and proud teen. He'll never be who his conservative parents want him to be, so he rebels by documenting the AIDS crisis through his photographs. As Reza and Art grow closer, Reza struggles to find a way out of his deception that won't break Judy's heart and destroy the most meaningful friendship he's ever known. It sounds so good! <laughs> Sounds really... Heavy. Yeah, <laughs> heavy was the term I was going to use. <laughs> yeah. Um, but amazing. Like, it, it sounds vitally important, and there's enough distance, I think, that people could read this and appreciate it without maybe getting swamped in just how dire those times were, particularly yes. for the gay community. Well, I think it's interesting. We've had so little teen fiction that deals with that period of time. I mean, as you're pointing out, for kind of obvious reasons. But, you know, why fiction that deals with these moments of crisis can be really, really effective. And also, I think it's important for all youth but also like queer youth to understand that history you know and to know where Mm -hmm. where some of the perceptions that might not feel like immediately relevant to them come from you know where certain perspectives like within the community and stuff so i'm excited the quotes all say that it's an epic romance but it's really like big-hearted mackenzie lee who wrote gentleman's guide to vice and virtue describes it as a love letter to queerness self-expression and individuality i mean I'm just really excited. I'm really excited to read it. I love that it's a story about young gay teens that's not about just gay white teens, right? Which is typically Mm -hmm. the narrative that we get. And I'm excited for that sort of historical perspective. Although, God, calling 1989 historical makes me feel like super old. But yeah, so it's called Like a Love Story by Abdi Nazemane. And this is one of those ones that I would say people should put on their lists for June. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been slowly cropping up, you know, for the dozens of listeners, uh, (laughs) 
We haven't been getting quite as much interaction as I think Brenna and I would like, and we're, we're hoping to hear a bit more from you. But one of the pieces of feedback that we have gotten is people saying that they would like to circle back around with some of these books, particularly that you have been talking about, Brenna. Oh, okay. They want to know what your thoughts were on them. So that might be another appendix edition that we could do. Brenna's hold list roundup. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, because I think a lot of people like the idea of some of the books that you're talking about, but then they want to know whether or not it's worth their time, because there are so many YA texts. <laughs> That's a really fair point, and it will also keep me honest about finishing things on my hold list. <laughs> it's true. If you, you know? follow Brenna on Twitter, you will know that she is aiming for a very ambitious and lofty goal of 100 books to read this year. And I'm really behind because Joe assigned me a boring tome for my first book of 2019. (laughs) I did not know it was 600 pages. (laughs) We'll get into that, I guess, after the news. What's your news this week, Joe? Did you bring any? Or were you too busy reading A Discovery of Witches? I was doing both. Um, (laughs) No, so I I finished A Discovery of Witches. And then, which, by the way, we haven't said it. That's the topic of today's episode. People looked at the title, right? No, I never look at the title of podcasts. Why do I assume other people do? Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> um, so when you asked me off the top how I was doing both offline as well as online, I kind of fibbed a little bit. I have a tendency to experience what I affectionately refer to as the January blahs, mm. and other people would probably call mild seasonal effectiveness disorder depression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm... Not my happiest, most chipper self, and I'm going to fake it till I make it, but in an effort to help myself, I decided to surround myself this past week with friends from literature that I love very dearly. So good idea. I am a huge fan of a long-running graphic novel series that's out of the UK called Giant Days. Have you ever heard of this? I love it so much. Yeah, so Giant Days fills me with joy and love, and it kind of makes me feel like the world is not a heaping (laughs) garbage dumpster fire. So so this is, I had to bring my copy over because I have actually never looked at the name. So it's written by John Allison, and it's illustrated by Max Saren and Liz Fleming. And it's about three very different university girls in the UK. Susan, Daisy, and Esther. So one is kind of like goth beautiful. One is awkward and highly intelligent. And then there's Susan, who is the cynical, sardonic, kind of grounded realist. And the three of them share a flat over the course of a couple of years of university. And it's just so lovely. I love them all so much. They have great adventures. I can just relate to it a lot. And I wish that they were real people so I could spend time with them. Susan is my favorite. I love the series very much. You must I feel like looking... we're both Susans. You <laughs> probably yeah, we're both Susans. That is a great series. And he also has, I don't know if you've ever read his middle grade series. Have you ever read that one? I it's, haven't, no. It's called Bad Machinery. Okay, I see it on his list, but I haven't actually read it. I think you'd really enjoy it too. It's a similarly quirky assemblage of young people, but they're at, I guess it's a grammar school. And it very much is sort of like, what would the Giant Days characters have been like when they were little? It's not, like it's not the same universe of characters or anything, but it has that same exact vibe. But the problems are even less high stakes because it's middle grade. It's like, you know, right. they're like grade eight or something. Anyway, it's it's also excellent. I love him. And he, there's been a series of different artists on that title, including for a while, Liz Fleming, who is one of my favorites. So that, I think that's actually how I've got into it, but it's fantastic. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if people haven't checked it out again, that's Giant Days. Highly recommend it. If you do fall in love with it, I think there's eight or nine volumes that are available as well as I think a prequel or an origin issue, but it's a, a very strong recommend for me. In fact, you know what? I think I'm behind. I haven't read any of that were published in 2018, I don't think. So I have some catching up to do. There you go. <laughs> okay, so let's get on to our main event. We are talking about Deborah Harkness's... Did the mic capture that sigh? <laughs> yes, adequately. <laughs> it's a good 30 seconds. <laughs> so we are talking about Deborah Harkness's 2001 Discovery, A Discovery of Witches, and its 2018 television adaptation, which I've just been saying UK because I could never remember who aired it. I always default to the BBC, but of course there's multiple other places. So this is actually a Sky One production in the UK, and it aired in its entirety in September of last year. And it's now making its US and Canada debut on Sundance Now and Shudder, and it became available last Friday. Oh, I didn't entirety. realize we were so timely. That's why you were pushing me to finish the book. Yeah, man. <laughs> I got deadlines for a reason. <laughs> I'm glad you know what you're talking about. Shall I give a plot? If you think you can wrangle this 600-pound <laughs> behemoth into some kind of... Yeah, I mean, have I can, <laughs> because shockingly little interesting happens, but that's a spoiler for my feelings about it. Uh, by the way, I think it's a 2011 publication, not a 2001 publication there, Joe. Oh, yes, it's 2011. I apologize. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. That's what I said in my mind. <laughs> okay, so the book follows Diana Bishop, who is a professor of the history of science, and particularly she's interested in alchemy. She is a tenured professor at Yale, despite her youth. We keep getting told that she's super brilliant and she was tenured really early and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But the book takes place, or at least the book starts, at Oxford, where she's doing research. She's on a research semester. And the thing that you need to know about Diana Bishop is that she's a witch. But a secret witch. A secret witch. She doesn't acknowledge her own magical powers. She uses it for like to avoid like smashing a jar on the floor, but she tries really hard not to use her magic for anything that would impact her career. And she really desperately wants to live life as a normal person. She wants to not be a witch. However, her aunts are relatively strong witches, but her mother and father were very powerful witches, but they died in mysterious circumstances uh, when she was seven and she was raised by her aunts. So at the beginning of the book, we see her in this sort of research mode and she pulls a book off a shelf. I don't think I need to go into how like the Bodleian works, but anyway, she gets a book from the (laughs) Bodleian. Ashmore 782 is this manuscript. And she just pulls it because it's of interest to her alchemical research. But when she gets it, she discovers that it seems to have kind of a like some sort of magical spell on it. She can open the book, but she can't read or make sense of anything that's in it. She ends up returning the book, and that's really what starts all the The fuss. Drama, yes, because we discover that the world is actually made up of three species in addition to humans, witches, vampires, and demons. And representatives from all three of those groups believe that that manuscript has sort of the secret to the origins of all species. And therefore the way to kill them, potentially. 
Exactly, or at least the witches are pretty interested in the way to kill them. I'm not sure the vampires and the demons actually want to kill the other species. What we find out, though, through the introduction of a vampire character named Matthew is that creatures like witches, demons, and vampires are dying out. And he wants to get his hands on the manuscript because he believes it might help with his research and figuring out how to save these three species. Of course shocking spoiler alert there's a love story and shocking spoiler alert it's between the witch and the vampire a romance that should not be blah 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 and it's very uh, forbidden it's very forbidden there's not a, meant to happen there's an organization called the congregation which is the governing council of the witches uh, vampires and demons and they have declared that there is to be no funny business between <laughs> the species mm-hmm. but of course they fall passionately in love and matthew takes on the role of trying to protect diana from all of the creatures who want the manuscript and therefore want her because she's the only person who's ever been able to call up this manuscript from the bodleian you just like saying that word. I do. I do. I, uh, but you know what drives me crazy in the adaptation is when they all call it the bod. I've never heard anybody call it the bod. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Maybe they're talking about her because she's got a hot bod. <laughs> so anyway, all this to say they end up in this sort of epic struggle to protect Diana, but also to protect this manuscript. And as the novel, very, very long novel progresses, <laughs> they recruit the help of first uh, Matthew's vampire family, then Diana's witch aunts, and then finally some demons who enter in to also try to sort of set up, I guess it's kind of like a resistance to the congregation and the way they are wielding their power. Yeah. Does that do it? That more or less does it. So this is a trilogy of books. Jesus The first book ends with a bit of a climax, but in reality, nothing has been resolved. And the, there hasn't even really been a climax proper where you feel like the book can stand on its own. It very much feels like, you know, turn the page. Oh, no, you've got to go get that second book because the adventure continues immediately afterwards. Yes, yeah. So um, one of the things that they discover about Diana's long dormant powers is that she can time walk, which is a very rare witch superpower, the ability to not just travel through sort of space, but to travel through time. And so the book ends with her and Matthew escaping into the Elizabethan era to try to find a witch powerful enough to help Diana harness her own powers. Because she very much is unable to master them, even with the help of her two aunts, because she's just that much more powerful. And one of the things that we learn, of course, is that her parents spellbound her as a child, partially to protect her from the congregation finding out that she was so powerful. But I think we're also given a bit of an impression that she was so powerful she needed to be restrained for her own good. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we definitely see that her powers, because she is so untrained, her powers are sort of at the whim of her emotions. So when she feels trapped or frustrated or scared, her powers act on their own, often without her control or ability to control them, which is scary for people around her, but it's also really terrifying for her because she doesn't usually know what's actually happening. So a little bit of backstory on why I chose this, not just because the TV show was about to come out, but also because I had been recommended this book by my husband, Brian, and also a friend of mine, Angie, who had recommended it for her feminist academic reading group. What? Which she clarified later that she regretted immediately. (laughs) 
Not only did they tear the book apart, but she was very embarrassed at her choice. She thought it would be a fun, light read, but because it centers around an academic, she thought that they might enjoy nitpicking some of the depiction. So the reason I picked this is because I I had gotten two reasonably favorable reviews. Right. I just realized something that I didn't talk about in my adaptation and that I'm hoping you're about to address, but I want to say it explicitly for our listeners. I know at least two of our listeners are already annoyed that we're doing this title. Um, Joe, Mm -hmm. in what capacity is this a work of young adult fiction? Okay, so yes, I I was building to this uh, because when I told my friend that I was doing this book, she said that very thing. She said, this is not a book of YA fiction. This is very much about a mature woman. This is essentially verging on lady historical porn, supernatural (laughs) lady historical porn. And I would say having now finished the book, that is correct. (laughs) But in my defense... Uh, This is going to be good. (laughs) The way that Diana typically reacts around magic and even love because she acts like she's literally never fallen in love with anyone. And she talks a big game about how she's had relationships, but they've never meant anything to her. I would argue that the way that the book is written, and particularly the character, she is very YA tropey. I would agree with that insofar as this is Twilight for Grown Ups. Like, the ways in which she is incapable of rising to her own defense in any capacity and the ludicrous choices that she makes are very much reminiscent to me of everything that drove me nuts about. I was going to say the Twilight series, but I don't think I got past book two. I can't say it gets better. I've read <laughs> And the representation of female agency. I mean, that to me, that's one of the great frustrations of this book. So I know I've talked a big game on the podcast about how I don't really like supernatural stuff, mm-hmm. but I do actually typically really enjoy witchy stuff because witches are great. They upend the patriarchy, like both historically and mythologically, and I'm all for that, you know. So normally I really actually enjoy witch stuff. And one of the things that bothered me so profoundly about this is for a book about a witch, it is so... A, sure not, is a lot about vampires. <laughs> it is a lot about vampires. It's, it's A, not feminist at all. And B, I know I've already said this, but she's so profoundly lacking in agency in the ability to come to her own defense, in the ability to be the protagonist in her own friggin' story that I just... I found it not only to be a boring read, but I was also just disappointed from that perspective. Like when I read a book about witches, I want to see like sisters doing it for themselves. <laughs> and there's there's a there's a shocking lack of that in this book. Yeah, there's very little doing it for yourself. <laughs> no, I completely agree with you. I think one of the things that frustrated me the most about this book in addition to its length, and I know that we've jokingly been like, haha, it's 600 pages. Haha, it's, you know, a little bit boring. It's like, <laughs> these are legitimate issues that the book cannot overcome. Yeah. I've said it before about long books. I've said it before about long movies. I've said it before about television, not on this podcast, but in real life, if you know me. Well, we talked about it with the Netflix creep on our mm-hmm. sex education piece. Mm-hmm. People need to edit. You need to <laughs> yes. learn 
how to deliver your best content in the most appealing fashion. And this book has some major structural problems in addition to a character that is so retroactively Mm non-feminist. It's honestly frustrating. Yes, we can we can both cop to the fact that neither one of us is probably the desired market for this book. Like mm-hmm. we are not we are not middle-aged women who are I am a middle-aged f- woman, by the way. <laughs> but we're not looking for like neither one of us is really attracted to the texts that offer that kind of fantasy romance escape no, right. that I think this book is very much a member of. I texted Joe at one point when I was reading this and I was like, "Okay, Am I broken inside or is society broken? There is nothing romantic about a dude who can kill you. There's just nothing wrong. I don't get it. And for me, that's a huge thing to overcome in the book because I don't buy into the sexy plot. And I think if you don't buy into the sexy plot, there's like very little redeeming about this book. Okay, so I... In response to that, I did do a little bit of homework because I thought to myself, like, I think I responded to you, yeah, I don't get it either. (laughs) So I thought to myself, okay, so if we're not maybe the desired market for this, what is the attraction for people to these kinds of texts? So did a little bit of web sleuthing, and I came up with an academic article. Unfortunately, it is hidden behind a paywall, so I'll offer you a quick summary. And academics in the crowd, you can go and seek it out yourself. So this is a piece written by a woman named Ananya Mukherjee. Okay. And the piece is called My Vampire Boyfriend, Postmodernism, Perfect, in quotation marks, Masculinity, and the Contemporary Appeal of Paranormal Romance. And it's in The Study of Popular Culture, Volume 33, Number 2, in the spring of 2011. And what Macroget is essentially arguing is this idea that women are struggling with gender roles in a post-feminist world. So she's looking specifically from like 1996 to 2010. But I would argue that her insights are still accurate. And she's saying that it's women sort of struggling to either define themselves as feminist or to move beyond feminist and be like, I'm so feminist, I'm not feminist anymore but still seeking for that reassurance and that attraction from a gentleman that essentially doesn't exist anymore. So a man who actually has morals and values. And this is one of the reasons why people are so often attracted to vampires who are hundreds of years old and they still embody these old attitudes. So she says, my thesis is that many of the vampire romances that have become so popular in the 21st century, especially the ones aimed at young adult readership, present us with old school gentleman vampires who are certainly sensitive and evolved in some ways, but who also offer the security and stability of old fashioned gentlemen that some readers may now crave without being able to clearly articulate that craving. I argue, though, that such a yearning has to do with the contradictory and conflicted relationship that many women have to feminism and femininity, and as Mm. a perceived conflict between feeling protected and having the approval of visible femininity on one hand, and being self-determining and active on the other. Huh. But, okay. I don't disagree with that premise. I'm stuck on this idea of... I'm stuck on the part where bodily harm becomes like this very real risk that the women in these stories are willing to take on to have that chivalric 
romantic mm-hmm. relationship, that's yeah. the part where I struggle. And I thought about that a little bit. You know, she she talks about these two pieces in very typical gendered ways. There's obviously the saying about a dangerous attraction. So something that could harm you. It's like the bad boy syndrome, right? Sure, it's the way I feel about eating too much bread. <laughs> yes, or your attraction to your husband who's now making too many espressos. <laughs> could kill you with that caffeine. But I do wonder if maybe the other piece, too, is the idea that these texts feature love stories that are so profound and so all-encompassing that the women are never actually in danger because they love these men and the men in turn love them back so much that the danger is actually negated. So it's like, you know, I'm going to give my life to save this man I love, but I know that even when he bites me and I'm on the verge of death, he won't do it because he'll realize, no, he loves me and he'll stop in time. I know it's icky and I don't like it, but I wonder (laughs) if this is what these texts are meant to be conveying. Like, find a man who will threaten you and who will control you, but he will also protect you to the death. And isn't that romantic? Yeah, I get get what you're saying. I just, it's such a mental jump for me. To pull this back into YA, while you were talking, you reminded me of an article that I teach a lot in my children's lit class when I do YA. I used to teach Twilight at the end of the semester. I used to teach Twilight at Ender's Game at the end of the semester okay. as sort of an, a move from the children's lit tropes into YA so we could like look at the continuum kind of thing. Okay. And there's an article by Anna Silver that was published in Studies in the Novel in 2010, and it's called Twilight is Not Good for Maidens, Gender, Sexuality, and the Family in Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series. And what she's investigating in this article is, I mean, she's really asking all the questions that we're asking about Discovery of Witches, but she's adding the layer of, is it particularly damaging to portray this kind of romantic desire, even if we acknowledge that it's in the culture, and even if we acknowledge that it's something that adult women do seek out in their entertainment? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it particularly damaging to portray that in YA? And I feel like both of us know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But one of the things that she sort of talks about this unapologetic patriarchy in Twilight that Mm -hmm. seems to be very appealing to its teenage fans. And I see that same thing in A Discovery of Witches. Like I texted you about this when I was reading it, but one of the things that drives me crazy is, you know, you're in a room with like two very powerful witches, Diana, who we know has like all of these skills and competencies that we never get to see, but like we hear about them. And everybody is 100% deferential to Matthew without question. It's Mm -hmm. like, and Diane at one point says, he's my husband now and I obey him. And if you want to stay in my life, you will obey him too. And it's like, wait, what? I felt such whiplash because I don't. Yeah. She's a modern academic woman who has tried to embrace a completely non-magical, non-supernatural life. She's been educated. She's a single woman living alone and traveling the world with her research And yet, with literally zero discussion, she completely embraces this, Anna Silver calls it this, unapologetic patriarchy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that drives me craziest in the book is that she has all these moments where she's like, I won't let you hold the door open for me because I'm a feminist. (laughs) But you can, you can, you know, order me around, tell me what to do, divorce me from my real life. That's all fine. (laughs) But don't hold the door open for me. Hashtag feminism. (laughs) 
Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's very discouraging. I mean, I I can't claim to think of Diana as a strong female character even before mm-hmm. we really get into the mm-hmm. time when she and Matthew really, you know, fall in love. It's it's kind of deeply ironic though that this this book honestly does feel like the next step in Twilight because the romance is so old-fashioned and chaste mm-hmm. and yeah, it advocates for this idea of like, this is a modern woman, you know, she's she's smart, she's educated, she's independent, she's financially stable, she's in demand, like she's wanted for her smarts, like the whole first part of the book is Mm -hmm. all about how freaking smart she is. Mm -hmm. And then she meets this man, and she loses her mind. (laughs) Yes, and it's for, I think we need to say, I don't think we said off the top, Deborah Harkness is herself an academic. This series is her first foray into fiction, but she's like she's a published academic. I want to say historian, but uh, might be literary scholar, I'm not actually sure. So I, I find two things odd. <laughs> One, that her characterization of an ostensibly, I'm going to say liberated, because I was writing a gender studies lecture this morning, but Fair like enough. an ostensibly liberated, educated, post-second wave woman one i find it so bizarre that her depiction of this woman rings so hollow because much of that depiction like she has access to her own life for example but the other thing i find weird is that this as her first novel to circle back to the length it's odd to me that somebody's first novel would be so poorly and ineffectually edited somebody's Mm -hmm. first novel published with viking i think like it's not like she's self-published this thing no this is a major this was given a wide release it was given a big push there's a reason it's a big hit and there's like i call i call it stephen king creep you know how every book stephen king releases is just a little bit longer Mm -hmm. and my my theory on stephen king creep is that he is so big that no one can really edit him effectively anymore if he wants something in the text it's gonna stay but that's not the case for a first-time novelist so uh, i I know that we are in the minority, that the people who have found this book and who it was targeted to have absolutely loved it, but I think it could have been a much stronger novel. There are moments where her competency as a writer is really quite strong and striking, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's buried in just, A, this romance that I found exhausting. I think you and I were both talking about the fact that we really liked the document history stuff more than the romance. <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) So much more interesting. It honestly, their whole section... Okay, so for people who haven't read the book, and to be honest, I feel like at this point we're probably encouraging people to maybe not read the book. That would be my vote, yes. I mean, if it sounds intriguing to you, by all means, we're not going to yuck your yum. But there's whole interesting sections of this book. And I say sections because it really does feel like the book goes in fits and stops. So there's whole sections where she's knee deep in research mode and you're getting the outline of what her day looks like. And, you know, for me, it was a little too much tea drinking, but that's okay. (laughs) And then once the start with once the stuff with Matthew begins and the danger kicks in um Mm -hmm. because unfortunately we're never really sure what the rules of the world are because she herself doesn't know and unlike the tv show which we'll talk about momentarily we don't get glimpses outside of the two of them often i think maybe once or twice we do but uh 
there's whole sections that are really interesting where Matthew is telling her about his history and his engagement in different types of conflicts, different types of secret societies, different scientific developments. And, you know, she's perusing his library. There's a whole section where she learns how to make what we come to discover as abortion tea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of these different little elements are really intricately described they're very vivid they really leapt off the page to me and i found that i was enjoying those pieces the most and then you know whenever we had to come back to vampires and witches and demons i was <laughs> kind of like oh and we're back to earth okay yeah no it's true i really thought that that was by far the most effective stuff that world building which unfortunately never actually really gets fully realized because there's this pressure to retain the romance story and to move the plot forward. But the world building is, I think, much stronger. I was constantly frustrated in the same way that you're describing, especially, as I say, because like academic fiction often sort of goes too far <laughs> into those areas. And this, to me, did not go far enough. And that's like, there are so many books I would rather read. I want to read Marta's story for sure. I want to read more about Isabeau, for sure. Those are the two members of, of Matthew's family who we meet when the book moves to France. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely want to read the story about how Sarah and M got together. That's her lesbian aunts. Like, I totally want to read that story. Yes. Um, and I guess, ultimately, the disappointment in this book is twofold. One, that it doesn't pick up the more interesting tropes of witchcraft to give us a really interesting feminist narrative. Mm -hmm. And two that even though it's not picking up on those tropes, it is so tropey in regard to romance and this unapologetic patriarchy, as I'm borrowing from Anna Silver, that what it ultimately ends up doing is not very interesting at all. It's odd to see a book that seems so self-confident in the romance angle, and really it is very tropey. Like, it's this is Twilight for slightly more mature readers mm -hmm. but it seems so unaware of what parts of the book are actually either setting it apart or that are most engaging and yeah. again like maybe this is just because you and I are so disinterested in that supernatural romance that we just can't find any kind of pleasure in those sections but I just I honestly felt like I wanted to send Deborah Harkness an email and be like I think there's a really good, interesting book in here, and I don't know who told you to put certain <laughs> things front and center, or like, yep. or did you not have an editor who would be like, hey, let's take a step back because you shouldn't introduce integral characters with 50 pages left in the book. Like, this just isn't a smart way of writing it. Especially and I'm because... not saying that to be like a f Sorry. No, PG. but you're right. <laughs> I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that... There were so many parts about the book that I would suddenly find myself captivated and lost in it. And then I'd be like, Sophie. wait, why? Why do I have to keep getting dragged out of this? <laughs> You're so right. Because Sophie and Nathaniel, there's another story I would read. Those are the characters who Joe's alluding to getting introduced in the last 50 pages of the book. I love Sophie. Like, I would have so preferred to read a novel focalized through Sophie. Talk about a woman who is on the one hand, sort of trapped by her situation. On the other hand, much more self-assured, interesting, and capable of rising to her own defense than our protagonist. Mm -hmm. And we meet her 50 pages before the end. Yeah, it's all of a sudden this slightly 
ditzy, dopey, pregnant demon who's also a fortune teller (laughs) and who basically comes bearing instrumental knowledge. But she's also, like, she wears the pants in her relationship with her sort of sniveling kind of ineffectual husband. Their dynamic is really interesting. And it's so brief because, like, I'm not even joking, people. 50 pages. (laughs) I was yep. like, where are these characters? Because when you watch the TV show, oh, yeah. they show up way earlier. And I kept waiting for them in the book and because I watched the TV show first and then read the book. Which maybe, let's, let's get into That's the... That's a good segue. Yeah, let's get into the TV show. So here's your Sky One trailer for A Discovery of Witches from 2018. Once the world was full of wonders. But it belongs to humans now. We have all but disappeared. Demons, vampires, and witches hiding in plain sight. Professor Claremont, you're a vampire. You're a witch. To determine what's happening to us, we have to understand our beginnings. The book. I've been looking for it for over a century. If we witches have the book of spells, it could change everything. You need to be careful. Is that a threat? No. It's a warning. It's not about the book, is it? It's about her. So, Brenna, what did you think of the TV show in comparison to the book? It was like being so thirsty and having someone hand you a cold glass of water. I have to confess, like when I finished the book, I was genuinely dreading sitting down to watch the first three episodes of the series because I just couldn't imagine having to sit through all of that again. (laughs) But the series is much better paced for a start. You meet all the interesting characters in the first episode, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's a more diverse cast than yes. the cast in the book. One mm-hmm. of my problems with the book is that there is no levity. There's no humor to lift the sort of self-seriousness of it. Whereas Very I f- dour. It's so dour. And like, I don't know. I want my witches more of the practical magic, witches uh-huh. of Eastwick sort of vein. <laughs> and so I was really pleased to have especially when sophie's character was introduced in the first episode and she is so charming and cast perfectly and Mm -hmm. utterly delightful i was like okay this series i can handle this now because basically they've taken all the good pieces of what harkness is doing in the book and they've remixed it in a way that is compelling to watch and keeps you captivated i was so grateful And I said to Joe, like, I don't think the series is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And it remains probably something that I would not have picked up on my own. But it is such a surprising improvement on the original book. I was profoundly grateful for it. So I've seen all eight episodes. So I've seen the entire first season. And in case people are intrigued by the idea and they would prefer to watch the show... You can rest easy in the knowledge that Sky One also shares your enthusiasm. It's actually been renewed for both seasons two and three. So hypothetically, they will cover off the entire trilogy of books because the first season covers the entirety of book one. Oh, okay. 
which is surprising to me because when I started the book, I thought, oh, this book is so long. It must encompass more events than what I've seen. The TV show actually manages to encapsulate not just the conflict, but also some of the depth, but by taking elements that occur later in the book and sprinkling them throughout the entire season, it actually makes it as you suggested, work a lot better because you're not left waiting. So one of the things we didn't talk about in the book is Matthew has some ex-lovers. Some of them he accidentally murdered and he feels very grief-stricken about and it's why he delayed his relationship with Diana. But then he also was the victim of essentially a coup, an attempted coup, where an adversary of his created the perfect vampire woman and then sent her out to engage Matthew in a relationship and she like nearly destroyed the family. This is Juliet and in the series she's actually introduced in the very first episode and she's a she's a wild and uncontrollable vampire but there's a huge climactic moment in both the book and the TV show where Juliet arrives at Sarah and M's farm in the US she attacks Matthew, nearly kills him, and this is the moment where Diana realizes some of her witch potential, witch fire, which is something that I think they say like no other witch has been able to do in hundreds of years. And she kills Juliet. In the book, it has no emotional impact at all no, because you have never met zero. Juliet. Yeah. So <laughs> this vampire shows up, she goes up in flames, she nearly kills Matthew, and then we get her backstory yes, for Matthew. Backstory after the person is dead. Yeah. And this is just another example where you're like, that does not work. Do not tell your story this way. Like, it doesn't carry any kind of oomph at all. Whereas in the TV show, and by the way, we're spoiling, spoiling. (laughs) So this conflict happens at the end of episode seven. Mm -hmm. So Juliet shows up and the conflict is exactly the same. The way it plays out is exactly the same. But it carries so much more resonance because... You've actually followed Juliet. You've seen her interactions with these these powerful men who capitalize on the fact that she's mentally unstable and they send her out to do various missions. And one of them is, oh, hey, Matthew's moved on from you. You should totally go and kill his side chick. And she's like, cool, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> it was very ranty, very rambling. It was. So. I thought it was still going. No, that's okay. I, I agree with you. Can we talk about the casting a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Would you like me to run down the list? Please do. Okay. So people will remember, I think way back in episode two, when we were talking about Warm Bodies, I mentioned that I was watching this show. So Teresa Palmer from Warm Bodies, she's the first person to show up twice on the podcast. Yay, Teresa. So she plays Diana, Matthew Good, who... I will admit, is very good at casting for an attractive vampire. <laughs> uh, Matthew Good plays Matthew. Let's see. The people who play some of the lesser-known individuals are not excessively well-known. Alex Kingston is Diana's Aunt Sarah. Who I love, but has a fairly unconvincing American accent. Yeah, it's sad that they kind of put her through that. Well, it's like you just find a part for her where she's Brit. Anyway, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Could have just made her British. There's absolutely no reason why she couldn't be British. <laughs> and Owen Teal as Peter Knox. So he is the head of the witch part of the congregation. Oh, and if we have British TV fans, Lou Breesley plays Jillian Chamberlain, and she is Molly Hooper in the Sherlock reboot. 
Oh, yes. Yes, she is. It's interesting. This is one of the changes they made from the book to the TV show. So in the book, Jillian is very cold and adversarial to Diana Mm -hmm. to the point where you think, oh, maybe this is why Diana doesn't want to do witchy things because this woman seems genuinely unpleasant and she's very provocative. She likes to poke at Diana. Whereas in the TV show, she's actually much more mild-mannered and she also seems like she's gotten wrapped up into something that she doesn't quite understand the implications of. So she becomes Knox's lackey and mm-hmm. then she is eventually killed by Matthew. And that's, to me, one of the disappointments in the book from my continue to beat my feminist drum over here, but Diana's not allowed to have friends in the book. (laughs) No, her closest friend is the guy who's maybe in love with her at the library. Yes, but we get no real, we get very little real backstory. Whereas in the adaptation, A, she's friends with Jillian before Jillian sort of turns. Mm -hmm. We actually see her going out for a drink with that friend of hers from the library. And she actually like opens up to people. She's much more human she's a much more convincing a person attempting to pass for human uh, than she is in the book (laughs) yeah in the book she almost shies away from human connections and in another version of the text it would make sense if she was trying to hide her magic from people but you never get the sense that that's the reason why she does it she's just she's so focused on her work and then any remaining mental or physical capacity she puts into drinking tea and rowing or running yeah Yeah, and yoga i thought Teresa palmer was excellently cast as diana bishop though i found her persuasively balanced between educated intelligent um you know in fact brilliant but at the same time sort of naive about life and the world i thought Teresa palmer was a really good casting choice to hit that balance Mm -hmm. she has a good vulnerability i find that's true. And, and this sort of, I don't want to say doe-eyed, that ability to simultaneously be sort of poised and in control of a lecture, and then at the same time, totally confused when her own powers come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought she handled that balance really well. Yeah. Again, I found her sort of more humane than the characterization in the book. I actually also liked some of the manifestations of her power. So my friend Angie, the one who initially recommended and then rescinded the recommendation, she said that the turning point in her feminist academic reading group was when Matthew leaves Diana at the castle with his mother and she begins to cry and she nearly drowns herself with her Mm -hmm. own tears. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the, I think, more effectively written parts in the book, with concerns to her magic because she really is caught unaware and she doesn't know how to turn it off and Matthew's mother Yasbo and Marth can't get to her to help save her but in the TV show you wouldn't have seen this because this doesn't happen until I think the end of episode four instead what she does is she actually causes a torrential rainstorm So it's more like she's tapped into the natural elements as opposed to the water pours out of her body, which I think would have been less visually interesting as well. But it just it's so much grander in the show as a result. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem hokey. Actually, while we're talking about academic women's reading group and stuff, I'm interested in one way that the TV show actually makes the stakes a lot higher for Diana. So in the book, she's at Oxford, she's working on a keynote speech for a conference and like, okay, a keynote speech for a conference is important. Sure. Mm -hmm. But you know, when she leaves Oxford and she can't work on the keynote speech, it gets forgotten pretty 
pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. It's like, Meh. Matthew's Damon friend, Hamish. Hamish? Hamish, yeah. He writes it away with a sick note yeah, in the book. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in the adaptation, she is writing a paper version of a speech that she has, or a talk that she's recently given at Oxford. And the goal is that if she can finish that paper, it's going to put her in contention for a position at Oxford. So like, the stakes are way higher for her to leave Oxford and to sort of take on this new life and these new responsibilities. She's an accomplished academic in the book, but her academic career is not moving forward particularly. Like, yeah, she's going to keynote at this lecture and then she's going to go back to Yale and like, she's got a good career, but in the film, her choice to leave Oxford is literally a choice between the progression of her academic career and embracing her life as a witch. Um, yeah. And I found that way more interesting <laughs> in terms of the stakes to set up for her. I mean, this to me was part of the struggle. Like, we're both academics. I'm a failed academic. You're a practicing academic. <laughs> a low-level practicing academic. Low-level. <laughs> I didn't love the idea that in order to embrace your true authentic (laughs) self, you essentially have to give up the thing that makes you smart. Part of what did work for me a little bit better in the book is this idea that she had always been using her magic. Mm. The magic was interwoven into her academic Mm -hmm. work, whereas in the television series, it seems like it's one over the other like she has Mm. to make that choice Mm -hmm. even though the decision to fall in love is of course captured as an undeniable like it can't be thwarted and once it happens there's no coming back from it yeah i don't know why it worked for me so well in the tv series i think just because i think we relate to the actors more to be honest i do i think that's a huge part of it but i also think like hopefully nobody's ever nobody's listening who like i've done this but like you can write a keynote (laughs) (laughs) in like a day and a half like and in a french castle this idea that you would be doing all new original research for a keynote at a conference i just there are so many moments in the book where i was like deborah harkness you are an academic you know that what you are constructing here is bs why are you doing it and it's it's almost funny it's just making it so much more broad like this one paper will get you a job at oxford which ps is also ridiculous for some reason i just like Good, just embrace the ridiculousness then. The idea that you spend three months writing a keynote talk for some rando conference. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a really bad academic, but I don't buy it. No, but I mean, that's a, that to me was actually part of what didn't work for me in the TV show. This idea that you would be invited to deliver a speech, and then if you could turn that into a paper, it would get <laughs> yeah, you a, right. an academic position. I was like... That's not a thing. You're right. And and again, not to toot my own horn, but this to me, is, it felt so very YA in that capacity, where I was <laughs> like, why not just make her a graduate student? Yeah. You know, right, make actually. her a postdoc and say, you know what? Getting published is a big deal. Yeah, you're right. That would be much more authentic. Yeah, but we're not yeah. we're not writing our own version of this. It's already been written. We can only criticize and <laughs> cajole. That's the choice we've made in our lives. <laughs> so one other thing I do want to talk about that I think worked really, really excessively well in the TV show. I can't remember how much exposure you would have had to her, but there's an elevation of a primary witch antagonist. So not only does Peter Knox, the head of the congregation, get more screen time and more backstory, like the congregation is actually a bit more fleshed out. So you kind of know so Welsh too. I love his Welsh accent. It sounds so old, like so authentically old and evil. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
So in the book, there's a very powerful witch named Satu. And at one point, she is commissioned by the congregation to essentially work some magic on Diana and kind of like rip her apart in order to discover the source of her magic and to uncover the location of Ashmole. And this is one of the more exciting moments on the TV show. Diana gets abducted at the end of one episode, and then almost the entire rest of the next episode is her being psychologically and physically tortured by Satu while Matthew and his mother and his brother, they have to scour the French countryside to discover her. But Satu is actually a much more interesting character in the tv show she gets a backstory we find out that she's from sweden we see her actually dispatch people who have come to her cabin to bring her in for the congregation like she gets rid of them it's clear that she's very powerful and she knows what she's doing but she again is also being misused by the congregation and by Knox, as well as this Mm -hmm. other big vampire who's on the congregation named Gerbert Dorriella. And we find out that Gerbert, he's imprisoned another powerful witch and he has her head in a box and she's essentially a seer that he uses to try to figure out who he should be acting against. Between him and Nox, they manipulate Satu to do their bidding, but she's so powerful, they have to be very sly about it. But mm-hmm. but she cares very deeply for witches. Like she's almost the true blood movement in the Harry Potter films and books where yeah, I definitely she, wants, that vibe. she wants to preserve the integrity of the witches. And it's very interesting to see the interplay between her and the men as well as this other witch that's been imprisoned, as well as Diana, where she you know, she keeps saying, I don't want to hurt you, Diana. But meanwhile she's carving her flesh out to try to reach inside diana's body and pull out what makes her mysterious Mm. yeah i think all told the decision on the part of the television makers to introduce all the characters in the first episode it must have been a difficult decision to make because it's such a massive departure from the source text it's so the right call and it's it's the right call in Satu's case it's the right call in Sophia and Nathaniel's case it's the right call you just get to know these people in ways that makes them matter and therefore makes this larger conflict matter like you cannot convince me to care that any of these species are dying out in the book I'm just like why would I care I know about two of them and one of them I don't like and the other one is so ineffectual as to be like I don't care die out like it's fine yeah whereas in the series even though I'm only I only watched the first three episodes for today's podcast I'm already all in with this world I care I care that these people are all going to die out and I care about what happens to their species and you're given representatives of each species mm-hmm. who redeem the rest of them right yeah you know, whether it's Diana's aunts or Sophie and Nathaniel or uh, Matthew. Eh. But you know what I mean? Like there are, there are people to care about in each species and reasons why they do what they do and their motivations are, are rounded. And you learn all that from the beginning so that as they come together in this larger war, there are some stakes developed. I just felt like the book never develops any stakes. Really struggles to make you care about any of the larger conflict the only reason you care is because if you've invested in their romance then you know that that's the threat yeah i liked the cat best of everybody in the book (laughs) 
I think it's probably good to clarify that if you go into the TV show without having the maybe not so positive experience of reading the book, that introduction of these other characters can often feel disjointed. I was going to ask if it was overwhelming when you watched it, because that's a lot of people to keep straight. It was. And I think part of the problem is that by parachuting a lot of these secondary characters in for just a scene or two in every episode, I remember frequently turning to Brian and being like, who is that person? (laughs) And what am I supposed to be taking away from this? Because there's just these random scenes in Venice where people hold up keys and go into a room and start talking about (laughs) Ashmole and the integrity of the species. And I'm just like, I don't know who these people are. (laughs) Like, what am I meant to be doing with all this kind of stuff? And Brian was like, oh, yeah, this is all stuff from like later in the books. And they brought it forward. And it works as a payoff the later you get into the series, because when Matthew's brother turns up for the fourth time, you're like, oh, right, I know him. As opposed to in the book where you're just like, he shows up and who is he? And why does he have a contentious relationship with Matthew? And am I asleep? (laughs) Basically. I think we've beaten this one to death now, Joe. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) I would say... Skip the book, watch the show, but also don't go in expecting... It's a properly adult, supernatural television show, but it's also not going to rock your world. Like, it's it's good, but it's not great. I mean, I will stand and say 100%. There's nothing that, about this that makes it a YA book, but I will agree that if the emotional sort of arcs of YA heroines interests you, then you're probably more likely to engage with Diana, at least in the TV show. Mm-hmm. One other positive to bring up, I didn't realize it at the time, but the TV show is 75% directed by women and yeah, 100% that. written by women. So hello, gender parody. That's pretty freaking amazing. That's pretty exciting, actually. And it looks really good. Like they poured a lot of money into it, considering it's a UK production. Yeah, I was impressed by like how the magic looked. I thought the Ashmole 782 was not so convincing. But then when she has that witch wind in the library, I was like, oh, okay, now I'm in. This is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, an original piece that is not in the book at all. So and It works so well. Yeah, some of the special effects better than others. The part where the vampires go super speedy. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> Anyway, so that is A Discovery of Witches. Let us never discuss the books again. (laughs) And maybe I'll let you know how the the TV show fares in its later versions. Yeah, please do. Well, Joe, I guess next week we're looking forward to checking out one of our series namesakes with Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, right? We are indeed. and I I know you've been looking forward to this one since we started, pretty much. I'm so excited. I've begun reading it because I'm such a slow reader, and this is another multiple hundred page book, but um, I'm really, really enjoying it. I love Angie Thomas's voice, so I'm very excited to see where it goes and to see how the very well-received film adaptation from 2018 comes together. Fantastic. I can't wait to talk about it. And it is long, but the pacing, I mean... Compared to a discovery of witches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to tell us how much you loved Discovery of Witches and how wrong we are about Deborah Harkness's novel and trilogy, you can catch up with us on Twitter at hashtag HKHSpod. Joe, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B Stole My Remote. 
And I'm I'm still at Brenna C. Gray. And apparently we have an email address. Joe just blindsided me with that last week. <laughs> What's our email address, Joe? It's hkhspod at gmail.com. So if you have something a little longer, you can send it that way. Definitely. And feel free to disagree with us. We're here for it. Yeah. And until then, I'll see you on the page. And I'll see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye.